For some of us, we can become passionate and sometimes angry about politics and politicians, but at the end of the day, we remain law-abiding citizens. Some of us don't and become extremists, sometimes violent extremists who take the lives of politicians who have angered us. Even our government can become the schemer. This is the history behind the crime. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Behind the Crime. I'm your host, Erin Lasley, just back from vacation. I hope you all enjoyed the two bonus episodes I left you. I had one person respond to the bonus episode one homework and reminded me that President Andrew Jackson was the first president to survive an assassination attempt. Richard Lawrence was a mentally ill house painter. Uh, He sounds like he was schizophrenic based on his claims that he thought he was Richard III. Uh, He stalked President Jackson for a few weeks before Lawrence approached Jackson at the U.S. Capitol and shot at him with a pistol, but the pistol misfired. He tried with another pistol, but once again, no joy. Jackson proceeded (laughs) to beat Lawrence with the cane until a crowd subdued the would-be assassin. Lawrence was tried, but found not guilty by reason of insanity, and he spent the rest of his life in insane asylums. Uh, But to be honest, execution would have been a more humane um, outcome than being treated in some of those hell holes. Uh, So thanks, David, for doing your homework. Over the holiday, I was in Colorado Springs, and I always visit one of my favorite used bookstores. It's called Poor Richard's. If you ever find yourself in the Springs, you have to check it out. I found a few history books, but I also perused the true crime section and found a Reader's Digest book on assassinations, uh, just in time for the second part of the decade of assassination. Uh, It wasn't as in-depth a book as I hoped it would be, but it had a few interesting details which I've used in conjunction with everything else. Once again, I am using my historian's mind palace to write this episode with the help of a few other resources, of course. While I was on uh, vacation, and some of you might might have seen this on the news, um, I know quite a few people uh, texted me when uh, when this happened. Uh, Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated while he was giving a speech in Nara, Japan. Uh, The killer said it wasn't political, uh, but he had been planning the murder for months, and the killer's mother had donated money to a religious organization Abe had some affiliation with, uh, which kind of made the the assassin um, the, the assassin mad. Uh, the killer fashioned a handmade gun, so because guns are they're kind of outlawed in Japan, so he made his own gun, but he didn't have the balls to confront Abe. He shot Abe in the back like a coward. And I'm sure more details will come forth in the next few weeks. So I will keep an eye on that for you. I also want to reiterate how rare political assassinations in the industrialized world are. Guys, the 1960s was a fluke with all the assassinations that was going on. Uh, For a political leader or former leader in this case to be assassinated is highly unusual. So yeah, 500 years ago, it was very likely, you know, a king, a queen, or an advisor, or something like that. 
uh, could be offed pretty easily. And it happened uh, a lot, either through assassination, war, or coups. But today it's just not the case. Uh, in fact, you really don't want your political opponent to be assassinated because they are then made into martyrs and their legacies will live on long after the assassin has died. Uh, <laughs> as sick as it sounds, assassinating a political leader or attempting to assassinate a politician is good for business. It's called sympathy votes. Uh, so before Ronald Reagan was shot, his numbers were decreasing. But immediately after he was shot, his approval ratings, they jumped 11 points. Uh, numbers like that don't last long, but long enough to push through policies you may not want pushed through. Uh, so do yourself a favor. Don't be the asshole who assassinates someone. Especially, don't be the ballist douche that shoots someone in the back. Coward. Okay, so let's get to it, shall we? This is already going to be a long one. Uh, I want to start this time with President John F. Kennedy. I'm pretty sure we all know the assassination story. On November 22nd, 1963, JFK, Jackie Kennedy, Vice President Lyndon Johnson, and Lady Bird Johnson were down in Dallas, Texas on a kind of pre-campaign political tour to rally Democratic support in Texas. JFK, Jackie, Texas Governor John Connolly, and his wife Nellie were all riding in the president's 1961 Lincoln Continental Convertible, which is actually kind of a sweet ride, uh, through Dealey Plaza, when from the Texas School Book Depository, Lee Harvey Oswald fired three shots at the motorcade in 5.6 seconds. Both Kennedy and Governor Connolly were shot. Connolly survived his wounds but the back of Kennedy's skull pretty much exploded from the force of one of the bullets. And from the Superior film, I I'm sure all of you saw Jackie cradling Kennedy's head. I mean, she was climbing out of the back, um, but as they took off, she was cradling his head. Kennedy was pronounced dead at 1 p.m. after receiving the last rites from Father Oscar Huber at the a local Dallas hospital. Vice President Johnson was sworn in at 2.38 p.m. on Air Force One by federal judge Sarah Tillman Hughes, who was the first and only woman to swear in a president. Personal note, Sam's 2-6000, the BC-137C Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon used as Air Force One, is now at the National Museum of the United States Air Force, and you can actually go on board. A few years ago, I visited the museum and toured Sam 26000, and I got I got the eeriest feeling on board. All I could think about was Jackie standing next to Johnson with her husband's blood and brain matter on that pink suit, and John's body was in the cargo holds. On board, they actually have that picture um, up on the wall, and in that picture, she looked... God, she looked so stoic while her entire world was unraveling. And I won't lie, I, I got a bit misty-eyed standing there and just wondering how she had to be feeling. Uh, so anyway, if you find yourself in Dayton, Ohio, you can visit the museum for free. If you're an aviation fan, you will not be disappointed. Uh, back to JFK. 
that's how he died. As I have said before, I'm not going to go in to all the conspiracy theories. There's just too many, and that is the most epic rabbit hole in U.S., if not world history. I will say that the Warren Commission, though they couldn't say who or what, believed Oswald did not act on his own. I do want to cover some things that may have contributed to JFK's assassination, or at least led up to his assassination. JFK came into the presidency in a time when the Cold War was really getting freaky scary. And the conflict in Vietnam, it was like teetering right on the edge of catastrophe. One of the most memorable and historic moments in JFK's term was the Cuban Missile Crisis. It scared the holy hell out of most people in the United States when Soviets parked nuclear warheads in Cuba. Just a hop, skip, and a jump away from Florida and had the ability to reach places like Washington, D.C. The Joint Chiefs of Staff and some of Kennedy's staff wanted to bomb the bastards and invade Cuba. However, Kennedy and his advisor slash attorney general slash brother Robert were still soured over the Bay of Pigs scenario and instead launched a naval quarantine on the island and opened up communications with Khrushchev, the premier of the Soviet Union. Peace prevailed despite the many clusters that happened during the crisis. You can always read about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but you know I'll always throw out some movies for you. So check out 13 Days with Kevin Costner. As a historian, I theorize this event garnered Khrushchev's respect for Kennedy. Almost like, hey, here's a man who's not going to get all hot-headed and push the button when things get tense. Here's a man I can work with. Indeed, the Cuban Missile Crisis was the reason for a, quote, hotline um, was opened up between the Oval Office of Moscow and the limited nuclear test ban treaty was signed. During a commencement speech at the American University in DC in June of 1963, Kennedy urged Americans to re-examine Cold War stereotypes and myths in order to move closer to peace with the Soviet Union. Of course, Kennedy wasn't a stupid man. That same summer, Kennedy traveled to West Berlin to show his support for the Waldorf City and famously declared to the rest of the world, let them come to Berlin. Let them come to Berlin to see the progress of capitalist West Berlin and the backwardness of Soviet-controlled East Berlin. He was willing to make peace with the Soviets, but he wasn't going to let them march across the world spreading communism either. Not only was Kennedy signaling his willingness to de-escalate the Cold War, which, to be honest, pissed a lot of people off, especially the Warhawks and the Joint Chiefs. There's also strong evidence Kennedy intended to withdraw most American troops from Vietnam, which, once again, pissed off a lot of people in the war, you know, in the Pentagon. During Kennedy's presidency, he first sent American special forces and then over 10,000 American advisors to help the South Vietnamese combat the North. But ultimately, he knew the fight was that of the Vietnamese and not of the United States. The immolition of Buddhist monk Quang Duc in the summer of 1963, and then the murders of Vietnamese President Diem Dinh Nhu, which we'll get to in a sec, 
and his brother in the fall of 1963 shook Kennedy in the White House. Kennedy knew it was time to get the hell out of Dodge, and Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara agreed with them. Only, Kennedy was killed before he could give the order. Strangely, both the Cold War and America's involvement in Vietnam escalated after Kennedy's death. Mere days after the assassination, President Johnson authorized the CIA to implement some pretty shady shit in Vietnam, which ultimately led to the Gulf of Tonkin. Meanwhile, in Soviet states, the news of Kennedy's death actually sent shockwaves through the population, and the people feared it would lead to an attack on Cuba and would stop negotiations with Moscow. Cuba was safe, but Kennedy's death did stop peace negotiations, and the Cold War, it only got colder. By the way, some of this information is new and was just released during the last wave of Kennedy documents released during the Trump administration. John F. Kennedy's assassination ultimately led to the assassination of his assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald. Patsy? Maybe. Okay, probably. But in the grand scheme of conspiracy theories of this level, we all know that Oswald had to die. Who was Lee Harvey Oswald? Someone who had some serious issues. He didn't come from a very stable home life as a child. He was labeled emotionally disturbed as a youth. He was court-martialed twice in the Marines before he defected the Soviet Union. Which is kind of strange because more people defected from the Soviet Union than actually, you know, wanted to get into the Soviet Union. He married a Russian woman, had a kid, and returned to the United States and had a second kid. Oswald returned to the U.S. mainly because he became disillusioned with the Soviet Union. You think? and missed the nightlife and bowling alleys of the United States. The Oswald settled in Dallas, where Marina Oswald began to hang out with some anti-communist Russian and Eastern European immigrants of the area. Oswald, however, began to plan the assassination of, no, not Kennedy, but retired Major General Edwin Walker, that's two stars, who was a white supremacist and also helped stir up riots in Mississippi when James Meredith was trying to enroll in Ole Miss. Oddly enough, Bobby Kennedy had Walker thrown in a mental institution for, for evaluation after the commotion, which is kind of strange. Anyway, on April 10th, 1963, Oswald took a shot at Walker, but Walker escaped harm. No one knew who the shooter was until after Kennedy was assassinated and ballistic ex experts agreed the bullet fired at Walker was very similar to those fired at Kennedy. This is when Oswald returned to New Orleans, where he was originally from, and began handing out leaflets supporting Fidel Castro in Cuba. Not going to go through all that. You want the short story or the semi-short story? Watch Oliver Stone's movie JFK. Even shorter story, after New Orleans, Oswald was hell-bent on moving to Cuba and traveled to Mexico City to get permission from the Cuban consulate. Maybe there was better nightlife in Cuba than the Soviet Union. Marina did a big hell no and stayed in Dallas. Anyway, after causing a scene at the Cuban consulate, officials there denied Oswald a visa. <laughs> saying he would do more damage to the revolution than help it. 
<laughs> dejected, and probably more than a little pissed off, Oswald returned to Dallas in October 1963, where he got a job at the Book Depository. And the FBI became interested in him because of his determination to get to Cuba. The FBI visited Marina a few times and pretty much enraged. Oswald visited the local FBI field office and left a note for the agent in charge of the investigation. It pretty much said, hey, leave my wife alone. Come talk to me if you have any questions and I'll blow up the FBI if you bother my wife again. Well, hello, red flag. At least it would have been if the FBI didn't brush it off. You know, hindsight and all. Or conspiracy. Because the note Oswald left was destroyed. After Kennedy's assassination. I guess Oswald thought if he couldn't knock off Walker and he couldn't get to Cuba, then he would take a shot at President Kennedy. We all know on that fateful day, Oswald used his rifle to take three shots at President Kennedy from the sixth floor window of the book depository. After the last shot, Oswald quickly fled the building, took a bus, and then taxi to a boarding house, and then took a walk. That's when Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett drove by and stopped to question Oswald, according to the Warren Commission. Without even waiting to see what the officer wanted, Oswald drew a pistol and killed the officer. That's when Oswald fled to the Texas theater and was shortly after arrested. Oswald spent two days as a guest of the Dallas police and was questioned multiple times. Some say without being read his Miranda rights or being provided an attorney. He was questioned by both the Dallas PD and FBI and Oswald, no surprise, denied everything and was eventually provided legal counsel. But Oswald only wanted representation from either the Communist Party USA or the ACLU. Oswald appeared in front of the press a few times, once again denying everything and even claiming he had no idea why the police arrested him. Come on, I don't think Oswald was the smartest man on earth, but he certainly wasn't an idiot. He knew why he was there. To wrap all this up, on November 24th, detectives were leading Oswald through the basement of the police headquarters, surrounded by press, when nightclub owner Jack Ruby approached Oswald and shot Oswald just once in the stomach. That's all it took to take out an assassin. Or Patsy. Whichever you choose. Why did Ruby shoot Oswald? Ruby said he did it because he was upset and wanted to save Jackie the pain from coming back to Dallas for a trial. The most plausible explanation, though, is Ruby did it on behalf of organized crime. Why? Well, that's conspiracy theory territory we're really not going to go into. I know. You're asking, Aaron, if you're not going to put in the good stuff, then why are you even telling us what we already know? Because... I wanted to do the decade of assassination, and I would be remiss if I didn't cover Kennedy and Oswald, if only briefly. I mean, you've all seen dozens of documentaries. Do you really need me to go over it all over again? Okay, how about let's go back to no Dan Diem. Diem, which was his first name, was the first president of South Vietnam from 1955 until 1963. 
Shortly before he took up the mantle, Vietnam was partitioned into two countries, South Vietnam, also known as the Republic of Vietnam, and North Vietnam. While Ho Chi Minh and other pro-communist leaders turned the North into a communist state, it was the attention of Diem and the U.S., of course, to grow the South into a capitalist republic, which was all fine and good on paper, but not so great in reality. Diem also looked good on paper. He was educated in the West, he was a devout Catholic, and he had plenty of experience in government service. However, Diem was a bit of a despot. While Western powers felt more comfortable with Diem, you know, because he spoke Western languages and he was a Christian, most people in South Vietnam were Buddhist. And Diem thought, well, that was beneath him. He adopted pro-Catholic policies and promoted pretty much only Catholics into high-ranking government positions. People in the South Vietnamese military even started to convert to Catholicism because they believed, rightly so, that it would benefit them during promotion time. Buddhists didn't like this very much because they thought they were getting the shaft, which they were. It didn't help that the Viet Cong were also waging war against the South during this time, trying to bring the North and the South together under the communist flag. The more problems South Vietnam faced, and there were a lot, the more despotic Diem became. Simply put, dude was a dictator. All the Buddhists really asked for was permission to display religious flags and religious equality, but Diem refused. And when protests erupted, Diem sent in troops, dogs, and even used chemical weapons to disperse crowds. The U.S. didn't really like this too much, even though the same anti-protest techniques were used against civil rights protesters in the South, and began to distance themselves from Diem. All hell broke loose in June 1963 when a Buddhist monk, Thich Quang Duc, set himself on fire in the middle of a busy street in Saigon to protest Diem's treatment of Buddhists. I'm sure a lot of you remember this picture. I mean, can you imagine that, one, being so devout in your faith that you would set yourself on fire, and two, being so pissed off at your nation's leader that you would set yourself on fire? I'm not talking about burn yourself for a few moments and then put the flames out. I'm talking about real burning at the stake shit. And Thick Quang Duck wasn't the only one. A lot of monks self-emulated after that. And Diem got so hacked off, he raided pagodas and destroyed statues of Buddha. And his wife, she didn't really help things much when she remarked, if the Buddhists want to have another barbecue, I'll gladly supply the gasoline. It was a real Marie Antoinette moment. Aaron, what does any of this have to do with the U.S.? Well, thank you for asking. When the U.S. started backing themselves slowly out of the room, Diem threatened to start making peace with the North and with the Viet Cong, which was a real no-go for the U.S., well, because of the U.S. policy of communist containment and all. Enter the CIA. The CIA and the U.S. ambassador to South Vietnam assured South Vietnamese generals the U.S. would not interfere should they want to un undertake a coup against Diem. Hint, hint, 
clue, clue, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The generals enthusiastically made their preparations and on November 1st, 1963, launched a successful coup against Diem. Both Diem and his brother were taken prisoner the next day and were both bayoneted, gross, and shot in the back of a military vehicle. Diem's body? Well, he was buried in an unmarked grave next to the U.S. ambassador's house. Not that the coup really made things better anyway. The country went through a series of military generals slash prime ministers until its fall to the north in 1975. While the coup did benefit Buddhist majority, millions of Vietnamese ultimately died from the fighting between the north and the south and its U.S. ally. How about we move on to a political figure you may not know much about. Ever heard of a guy called George Lincoln Rockwell? I'm not surprised if you hadn't. Rockwell was the founder of the American Nazi Party, and he is still considered a god within white supremacist groups today. Both white supremacist groups, like the ones that marched in Charlottesville, and neo-Nazis still use the chant Rockwell coined back in the 1960s white power. If you ever listen to some of his rhetoric, it'll make you sick to your stomach. Rockwell was actually a Navy pilot in World War II and the Korean War after he dropped out of Brown University where he had studied philosophy. He dropped out of Brown because he thought universities were a breeding ground for communism and other dangerous radical liberal nonsense. If that were true back then, it's a wonder we're not all commies today. Rockwell was an ardent racist and anti-Semite. While he was stationed in Iceland, he married his second wife, and together they toured a lot of, like, the Hitler hotspots in Germany on their honeymoon. How romantic. The marriage actually didn't last long when his wife's father found out just how much of a racist asshole his son-in-law was. When Rockwell returned to the U.S., he found financial backing from a prominent anti-Semite and began racist publications and formed the National Committee to Free America for Jewish Domination. Yay. And that was in 1958, less than 15 years after the Holocaust. In 1959, he founded the American Nazi Party, or later officially titled the National Socialist White People's Party. Which, as a historian, God, this makes me laugh at the irony. The name, you know, obviously was an homage to the Nazi Party's official title, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, which, in reality, are not socialists at all. They're fascists. While in some cases, fascists rejected capitalist economic systems because they want the government to control everything. They also believed in social constructs and caste systems that prioritized their race, their religion, and their culture above everyone else's. Socialism is a theory that believes the economy should be government controlled. I know, it's close to communism, but also believes in equality. Everyone is the same. It's one of the main pillars of socialism. So Nazis are not socialists and socialists are not Nazis. That's just Aaron's thought of the day. Moving on. In 1960, the Navy 
Well, they pretty much kicked Rockwell out of service because of his political views. And not surprisingly, Rockwell blamed the Jews for his discharge. He never missed an opportunity to spew his hate retort wherever he could, and the press loved covering him because he was a three-ring circus in a decent suit and smoked a corncob pipe just like General MacArthur. He didn't look like your stereotypical Nazi, but he looked like a, I don't know, like a respectful man next door, if your neighbor is a Hitler-loving douchebag. Which, interestingly enough about Rockwell, he was a Holocaust denier, even though he said several times he wished Hitler had killed all the Jews. His views were not only deeply disturbing, but they made no sense at all either. Rockwell is kind of known for leading a counter-protest against King's March on Washington, which only about 90 of Rockwell's followers attended, <laughs> and a lot of those uh, were actually law enforcement trying to infiltrate the group. So there were probably more cops in that group than actual Nazis. Rockwell did manage to scare the crap out of Dr. King in Chicago in 1966 by rounding up belligerents to counter-protest King's march. So they marched out there with signs, some very hateful signs, and they threw bottles at the marchers. Now remember, this was the event King was hit in the head um, with a brick. Rockwell also started a record label, uh, which put out a lot of songs with titles uh, I'm not going to repeat here but featured derogatory slurs about marginalized groups. And as this was going on, Rockwell was getting along famously with characters such as Elijah Muhammad, uh, you know, the guy, the leader of the Nation of Islam, and Malcolm X before Malcolm left the Nation of Islam. Because all three men at one time believed in segregation. Rockwell spoke at some of the Nation of Islam conventions. He donated money to the Nation of Islam, and even adopted the organization's use of religion to gain more followers. Rockwell used Christian identity to justify his hate-filled beliefs, which continues to this day among white supremacists. Well, all this ended for Rockwell on August 25, 1967, when Rockwell was shot outside an Arlington, Virginia laundromat as he was fixing to do laundry. Oh, the glorious life of an anti-Semite. Rockwell was killed by former Nazi member John Patler, who Rockwell kicked out of the group, claiming Patler was too much of a commie. Patler was convicted and got 20 years, but only served 14. Unfortunately, what I said earlier about making people a martyr through assassination is true. Rockwell's views didn't die with him. One of his followers moved the American Nazi Party to Wisconsin and continued on with its, I don't know, its stuff. And another follower, William Luther Pierce, wrote the Turner Diaries, which later inspired Timothy McVeigh to blow up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. David Duke was also inspired by Rockwell, as were many of the people who marched on Charlottesville in 2017. I don't care what you think. Nazis are not fine people. A few months after the assassination of Rockwell, another political leader was assassinated, Che Guevara. I know some of you out there are asking, why does his name sound so familiar? 
And I think if you saw a picture of him with his beret, you would easily be like, oh yeah, that guy, he's a counterculture icon on t-shirts and posters and shit. Yeah, that dude. Chi Guevara was born Ernesto Guevara de la Serna in Argentina to a relatively you know, wealthy family of both Spanish and Irish descent. After reading a lot about him, he almost reminds me of Theodore Roosevelt in a way. Both men were raised in wealth, but suffered from asthma, which they had to overcome through their own perseverance. And I know there are a lot of staunch conservatives out there that are screaming at me right now for comparing a far-left communist to Teddy Roosevelt. Well, deal with it. In regards to life, Guevara said the following, Any task, no matter how daunting, could be solved by dint of enthusiasm, revolutionary fervor, and unbending determination. If that doesn't smack at Teddy Roosevelt rhetoric, then I don't know what does. Although he wanted to become a doctor, Guevara went on to travel South America, but the poverty and injustice of the people that he saw made him beyond angry. What really set him off was the CIA-backed overthrow of the Guatemalan government in 1954 so the United Fruit Company could continue to treat their workers like shit and sell cheap bananas to the U.S. No joke. That's what really happened. Ever wonder where the term Banana Republic came from? There you go. I recommend listening to NPR's podcast Throughline, uh, the episode entitled There Will Be Bananas, to learn more about the United Fruit Company and the banana drama in Central America. You're going to love it. I mean, it's you won't be disappointed. It was around that time Guevara became a staunch Marxist and began to vehemently hate the United States. He continued his travels throughout the Latin world until he ran into two Cuban brothers in Mexico, Raul and Fidel. Ah, oh, yes, the Castro brothers. And what do you know? They all had revolutionary and Marxist ideas. Maybe we should all hang out and take over the small island country of Cuba. Guess what? They did. Guevara became an effective military leader for the revolution. And it was actually Guevara who took Havana on January 2nd, 1959, a whole six days before Fidel marched in all victoriously. If not for Guevara, the revolution may have failed. Actually, probably would have failed. After the rebels took control over Cuba, Guevara was in charge of trying and executing war criminals mainly the soldiers and politicians who opposed the Marxist rebels. Many of the accounts that I've read, they, they differ. Some historians say Guevara relished his job and personally took part in interrogations and torture and the executions, while some historians claim Guevara tried to save as many of the condemned as possible. I don't know. What I do know is that Guevara loved to taunt the United States. After the Bay of Pigs, you know, when the CIA-backed Cuban refugees tried to take back Cuba and ended up in a disaster and embarrassed JFK because he signed off on it, Guevara sent a note to JFK that pretty much said, Hey, thanks for that. The revolution was on rocky ground before, but now we got loads of support. Guevara went on to piss off the United States even more when he fostered Cuban-Soviet relations 
and organized things on his end for the Soviets to place nuclear warheads in Cuba. Yeah, the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was Guevara. Needless to say, he made the U.S.'s shit list in a big way. Guevara was pretty much Cuba's foreign ambassador and traveled around the world forming allies and economic partners for the next few years. He even spoke at the United Nations and called the U.S. hypocrites because how can you advocate for peace and prosperity around the world when you can't even give some of your citizens basic human rights? But don't worry. He also used every opportunity to criticize the Soviets after they screwed him on the Cuban Missile Crisis affair. Just a note, Guevara said that he would have actually launched the missiles at the United States. That's a fuzzy thought. Needless to say, and I like saying that phrase, Cuba needed the Soviets, so Guevara was becoming a liability. In 1967, Guevara found himself in Bolivia trying to launch a Marxist rebellion against the U.S.-backed Bolivian government. This is going to go over well. The rebellion wasn't going very well, and Guevara got sick. He sent the word for help to Castro, but there was no response from Castro. Though Castro didn't necessarily set Guevara up, he did allow history to take its course. On October 8, 1967, the Bolivian military, with the help from the CIA, managed to capture Guevara. Sure, they interrogated him, but they didn't get anything out of him. So here was the thing. The Bolivian government couldn't risk the possibility Guevara could escape. And they couldn't try him either because he was a pretty galvanizing figure. So he had to die. But it couldn't look like an execution. The Bolivian authorities enlisted the help of a drunk soldier to shoot Guevara with a carbine rifle. But just don't do it in the head. Make it look like he died from, an, I don't know, an altercation or battle or something. Before the soldier started to shoot at Guevara, Guevara antagonized the soldier and roughly said, Hey, this is not difficult. You're only shooting a person. Be a man and get it over with. Guevara died of several gunshot wounds, none to the head. And while the U.S. was slightly disappointed they didn't get a chance to interrogate him, they didn't lose any sleep over it either. The Bolivian government buried Guevara in an unmarked grave, and some of the belongings he had on his person are now exhibited at the CIA. You can go and see Guevara's very own flashlight at Langley. Castro, being a showman, gave an impassioned eulogy for Guevara to millions of Cuban mourners, but Castro didn't really lose much sleep over the loss either. The revolution needed a martyr anyway. In 1997, Guevara and the bodies of other revolutionaries were found in a grave by an airstrip in Bolivia. The remains were sent to Cuba, where Guevara is laid to rest in a, the Cuban city of Santa Clara. Today, Guevara remains an iconic figure all around the world, uh, representing world revolution. And college students all around the world wear his image on t-shirts and pins, though Few probably know who he actually was. Finally, I want to bring all this back to Kennedy. No, not Jack, 
but Bobby. Robert F. Kennedy, I think, has always been my favorite Kennedy brother. Caroline Kennedy is my favorite Kennedy. Bobby was the seventh in line of the nine Kennedy kids and pretty much lived in Jack's shadow. Where Jack was the philandering playboy, Bobby was devoted to his wife and their many, many children and pretty much always did his duty to the Kennedy family. When Joe, that's the dad, told Bobby to be the head of Jack's political campaigns, he did. When Joe told Bobby to forgo a career in law and become Jack's attorney general, he did. He definitely made some enemies, though, uh, within organized crime when he went after the mafia during his tenure as AG. Convictions in organized crime went up 800%. And while he did sign off on the wiretapping of Martin Luther King's phones, he also sent Justice Department agents down to the South to be his eyes and ears and ensure nothing got too out of hand. Which it always did. But Bobby had real-time information when he needed to call out segregational politicians and governors. It was also Bobby who was in instrumental in opening up the lines of communications between the White House and the Kremlin during the Cuba Missile Crisis. He was young, but he was a genius. After Jack's death, Bobby stayed on as AG for a few months under Johnson. The two really hated each other and went on to serve as a U.S. Senator from New York. Bobby wasn't perfect, okay guys? But from my monologue, you would think I was in love with the man. Maybe not love, but I definitely admire him. He was a politician who stood for truth, justice, and the American way. Okay, okay, I won't go that far. But Bobby advocated for the impoverished. He toured several blighted neighborhoods in the United States and saw firsthand that Johnson's poverty policies, they weren't helping. In fact, many black neighborhoods, the situation was getting worse. Instead of welfare reform, Kennedy instituted the Bedford Stuyvesant Restoration Project, which attempted to lure you know, corporations and jobs into needy neighborhoods. Unlike some politicians in the 1960s, Bobby admitted his faults. He confessed that, yeah, he signed off on America's involvement in Vietnam during his brothers and Johnson's administrations, but that he was ultimately wrong and the U.S. needed to leave the country. Side note, remember, both JFK, Johnson, and Nixon, and probably Truman and Eisenhower, knew that the war was awash from the beginning but they had to stay in the safe face. Bobby knew all this. I recommend watching The Post with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. After that, jump right into All the President's Men with Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. Why? Guys, you just need to. Bobby also salvaged his relationship with Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders and was an advocate for Cesar Chavez. Bobby became a politician for the underdog, and a lot of younger voters and a lot of disenfranchised voters were getting behind him when he announced his candidacy for the presidency in 1968. This is the part that really, gosh, it guts me every time. On the evening of April 4th, 1968, Bobby was supposed to give a campaign speech in Indianapolis, 
but he received word that Martin Luther King had been killed. His campaign urged him to cancel the event, but it was John Lewis, who sometimes traveled with the Kennedy campaign, who told Bobby he had to speak. A crowd like that couldn't just hear the news of MLK's death and then be sent home because they wouldn't go home. Bobby agreed and he went out to address the crowd. It was the only time he spoke publicly of his brother Jack's death. Riots erupted in approximately 60 cities in the United States, but not in Indianapolis. And many people gave credit to Bobby because his words spoke of reconciliation and peace rather than hate and vengeance. Less than two months later, the country would have to come to reconcile themselves with Bobby's assassination. During the 1968 Democratic primaries, the Kennedy campaign was struggling to defeat Vice President Hubert Humphrey, who was taking state after state. But the campaign knew if they could take California, they had a good chance of knocking Humphrey out of the race. Bobby did take California, and he took South Dakota on June 4th, and he delivered his victory speech in the ballroom of the Ambassador Hotel in L.A. with his wife Ethel by his side. Just after midnight, Bobby left the ballroom through the hotel kitchen when a young Palestinian, Sirhan Sirhan, approached Bobby and shot him with a 22 revolver. Bobby was struck three times, once in the head and twice in the back, and five other people were wounded. There are pictures taken of the event, and you'll notice a young man cradling Bobby's head. Uh, that was busboy Juan Romero. And he gave Bobby comfort after the shooting by placing a rosary in Bobby's hand and assuring him no one else was killed. John Lewis was in an upstairs hotel room when he received the word Bobby had been shot. And Lewis fell to his knees and wept. Bobby was pronounced dead on June 6th after an unsuccessful surgery to save his life. Sirhan Sirhan was tackled by authors George Plimpton Jimmy Breslin, Pete Hamill, former professional football player Rosie Greer, and 1960 Olympic gold medalist Rafael Johnson. Sirhan was promptly arrested and was later convicted of Robert Kennedy's murder. He was sentenced to the gas chamber, but the death sentence was overturned when California declared the death penalty unconstitutional in 1969. That's how Charlie Manson escaped the death penalty too. Sirhan remains behind bars in California, and the governor of California blocked his parole on January 13th, 2022. Why did he kill Robert Kennedy? Because Kennedy supported Israel. Bobby was buried close to Jack at Arlington National Cemetery. This week, I want to bring you a a slightly different case. A partial skull lacking a mandible was discovered in late 1986 by hunters in Two Mile Canyon near Malad, Idaho. Five years prior, two other girls, Tina Anderson and Patricia Campbell, were found in the area less than 500 yards from the skull, both homicide victims who had disappeared in 1978 from the Pocatello area. Authorities have acknowledged a possibility that the crimes were related. The disappearance of Lynette Culver, 
a potential Ted Bundy victim, is also speculated to be related to the cases. Examination of the skull indicated the victim died due to being repeatedly struck with a blunt object. Initial reports state she was between 12 and 16 years old and possibly mixed race. A 2006 examination later indicated she may have been white. The skull was misplaced by law enforcement and was unable to be located for years until it resurfaced in 2018. Further analysis on the remains is pending. I will put two composite drawings on Instagram. If you have any information regarding this young murder victim, please contact the Idaho Cold Case Tip Line at 1-844-TIP-4040. If you feel uncomfortable going to the authorities, you can reach out to me at thehistorybehindthecrime at gmail.com or Instagram at thehistorybehindthecrime. Someone out there knows something or knows who this girl is. You may not, but you may have friends in Idaho or the surrounding states who do. Share this case with them. That does it this time, uh, fellow true crime and history fans. Don't worry. I'll be back next time with more history and crime. Until then, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Finally, I leave you with Bobby Kennedy's eulogy for Martin Luther King on April 4th, 1968 in Indianapolis. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm only going to talk to you just for a minute or so this evening because I have some very sad news for all of you. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land 
with an effort to understand compassion and love for those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with be filled with hatred and distrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling I had a member of my family killed but he was killed by a white man but we have to make an effort in the United States we have to make an effort to understand to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times my favorite poem I my favorite poet was Aeschylus he once wrote even in our sleep pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own deep despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God what we need in the United States is not division what we need in the United States is not hatred what we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country whether they be white or whether they be black So I ask you tonight to return home to say a prayer for the family Martin Luther King yeah it's true but more importantly to say a prayer for our own country which all of us love a prayer for understanding and that compassion that which I spoke we can do well in this country we will have difficult times we've had difficult times in the past but we will and we will have difficult times in the future it is not the end of violence it is not the end of lawlessness and it's not the end of disorder but the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together want to improve the quality of our life and wants justice for all human beings that abide in our land with and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people Thank you very much.